Before you launch the product, you have no idea what your market is. So all these people sign up on the wait list, some people are reading TechCrunch, and that gives you that spike. And then they actually figure out what the product is, and then they're like, no, nah, it's not for me. So then they'll dive off. But hopefully there's a little percentage of people in there who are who you're looking for. And it's from them that you can start growing your product. We didn't have a very complicated growth strategy for a while. We mainly focused on building a really great product that was useful to people that they would then wanted to share and bring other people in. Why do some companies succeed in driving growth while others fail? How do some individuals advance in their careers to lead teams that change industries? In the age of mobile, these are the stories of the companies shaping the way we interact with our world and the people who drive their growth. I'm Mada, and I'm the host for How I Grew This. Hi, everyone. It's an absolute pleasure to have our next guest, Cameron Adams. Cameron is the co-founder and chief product officer at Canva. And before joining Canva, he worked at Google as a designer and founded the startup Fluent. Cameron, uh, after being on the other side of the world, it's so cool to have you here with me, although you are actually still on the other side of the world. <laughs> yeah, it's a real pleasure chatting to you again, Mada. So where are you now? Tell, tell the guests uh, where we're interviewing you from. I am down in the very southern part of Australia, Tasmania. So it's the little island which hangs off the bottom of Australia. And yeah, it's on a bit of a rural property here. So it'll be a good place to see out all this chaos that we're going through at the moment. Man, I'm jealous. That sounds amazing. And how are you doing during these interesting times? I mean, obviously you get to be to work from a very interesting place, but how's how are you adapting personally? How's Canva adapting? Uh, I think we've all adapted really well. So we went fully remote very early on at the start of March. Um, and everyone at the company really jumped into it with gusto. Uh, we are figuring out all the bits we needed to work from home, working remotely, running meetings, uh, keeping the culture alive, keeping the vibe alive at Canva. Um, and, yeah, and everyone was really enthusiastic. And I think it's, you know, even though we have been constrained at times by not being able to leave the house, now that we've got a tiny bit more freedom here in Australia, um, everyone's embracing the flexibility and uh, I think really using remote work to its advantages. Have you made any like big changes to this, your company strategy, the way we, you interact with users, the way we sell because of, uh, because of this, you know, this big change in the world? Uh, not, no huge changes to the strategy. We were a bit worried at the very start that you know, anything could happen, the, the economy could implode, whatever. And we were closely looking at our metrics, um, looking at you know, new signups and people using the product. Uh, there was like a couple of days dip for us, but then it just picked up full steam ahead again. Um, and we've even seen greater growth through this period than we would have normally. Um, you know, traditionally for us, we, we often see a slump during the summer, which is you know, when everyone starts to go on holiday and, and people are using their business tools less. But this year, we've barely seen any slump. Wow. Uh, so it's actually been really positive for us. And, you know, as you think about, you know, this is a podcast about growth and, you know, what does growth, how do you think about growing your business during these times? And has it changed at all from how you guys were thinking about growth, you know, before February? I don't think it's changed how we think about growth. There's a few things we've put into play to really help people out. So, I mean, we see it as our responsibility to be able to help out people who are in less fortunate circumstances. So we put out 
a lot of different uh, plans and free trials, extended trials for people that might have been going through hardship who are running their business. Um, and we've also helped out large enterprises who might be affected as well. So we, you know, we really put our customers first and make sure that they're capable of using Canva. It's helping them through this period and you know, delaying any billing or anything that they might be having trouble with in the interim. Besides that, I think we've seen a real shift to tools like Canva where people are working from home, they're having to deal with their teams remotely, they need to do more online collaboration. Um, and yeah, I think it's really played into our hands. That's awesome. Very cool. So, you know, if we take a step back, you've had like this super interesting career. Tell us a little bit about the story of how, how you got to working under Lars at Google to then becoming part of Canva's founding team. What's the story there? Yeah, it's a bit of a winding journey. So I actually did uh, law and computer science at university, which probably wouldn't end up where I am now if you think about it. But straight out of university, I actually didn't have much chance, uh, luck getting a job. I wasn't particularly interested in becoming a lawyer or a full-time programmer. Um, so I kept doing my part-time job, which was graphic design. And that segued into web design, which segued into product design as that kind of evolved. Around about 2007, I moved from Melbourne to Sydney and uh, I had to stop running my own business when I landed in Sydney. And this opportunity sprang up to work with Google and I had no idea what it was at the time. It was a totally top secret project. Uh, but I'd been referred to someone to Lars Rasmussen there, who was one of the founders of Google Maps, and had just started a new product prototype at Google that they were trying to get off the ground. Um, so I came in to help them out with the UX and the UI design and discovered what it was, and it was this thing called Google Wave, which was their attempt to totally revolutionize communication and collaboration. Uh, and that kind of sparked off this wild ride for the next four years where we built this out. The team exploded from four of us in a tiny room to 50 engineers overnight, and we spent the next four years building it out, proving it inside Google, and then eventually launching it at Google I.O. in 2010. What happened to it? Is it still like going? Uh, it's definitely not still going. The product only lasted about a year out in the public. Um, so they launched a Google I.O. People were rabid for it. Like It was incredibly exciting. It made an amazing demo. And overnight, we had something like 3 million people sign up to the waiting list. Wow. Oh, my God. That's amazing. Talk about growth. Yeah. It wasn't quite ready for prime time. So we put them on this waiting list and we built it out for, for full production release about six months later. And there was lots of speculation about exactly what the product was during that time and people were buying invites and stuff like this. And, and we eventually launched it and it had so many features, so many different parts to it uh, that it was really hard to understand as a product. It could do so many things, but it didn't do exactly what you wanted it to. Um, so we struggled to really get traction. We eventually ended up with something like about half a million MAUs, which is pretty good in terms of like, you know, for a startup launching in its first year. But at Google scale, that just doesn't cut the mustard. Um, you need your product to be used by tens of millions of people within its first year. Um, so we really struggled to, to get that traction inside Google and eventually uh, it got canned. Most of the staff either went on to Google Plus or a lot of them left the company to go work at startups, start their own companies, uh, or even go to Facebook, which is where Lars ended up. 
So that's that's really interesting. And any big lesson from this? Like it sounds like like such a journey. If you look back and you're like, this is the one thing I learned around product <laughs> and growth, like what would that be? Yeah, for me, you know, I learned a ton out of that. It was my first real job. So I've been uh, working for myself for six years and going into a company like Google, which had over 10,000 people at the time, was a real lesson. I think I learned about innovation, particularly at big companies and how hard it is to kind of spark that innovation because the types of wins you're looking for at a multi-billion dollar company are very different to when you and I start out a startup and we're looking for our first customer and looking for our first dollar. I also think I, I learned a lot about product development and what you need to build a product that really grabs people and makes them passionate advocates of your product before you then start really amping up the growth. Um, and that's those, those are the learnings I took into uh, Fluent and then Canva after that. So, okay, so you, and then you left Google to tell us like the journey from Google to Canva and Fluent in between. Yeah, so after Wave died, uh, I spent probably about six months at Google just hunting around, trying to find the right project. Um, and, you know, they're really brilliant at that, about giving you the space to explore. Ultimately, I couldn't find anything that I was really passionate about, but I'd been chatting to two engineers there and, and we were both passionate about email. We hadn't learned our lesson about how hard it is to make a communication tool, so we thought we'd give it another crack, and that was fluent. And we started building that product with a real focus on the user experience, on the product feature set, on really serving a need for people. Um, and our beta users really loved it. They were using it, we were getting lots of feedback from them, um, and we had some really fervent users of it. We again, we had a waiting list for that, which accidentally got leaked. And overnight, we ended up with 80,000 people wanting to get on the service, but we hadn't optimized it for price or anything, so to get them on would cost us $5 a month. We hadn't set up any pricing or payment models yet. Uh, so everyone who'd signed up was, was signing up on the assumption it was a free product. Uh, this put, a, put us in a bit of a bind and we weren't quite sure what to do because we'd always planned to bootstrap that company and, and start taking payments for it, but having that many people just waiting to get on your product was too tempting. So we actually, we had quite a few investment offers and we went over to San Francisco where everyone was, was uh, clamoring for us thinking that we would come back with a, a million dollar check the day after and, and continue building the product, which uh, I'm sure you know is not exactly the case when you're raising your first round of funding. Um, and it took us forever to find investors, find the right investors, find people who wanted to get involved, find the first investor, get them on board, uh, get all the other investors to follow on. And we came so close to pulling together our first round when one of the investors pulled out and the whole deal collapsed and with it went like two months of, of sitting around in San Francisco doing really hard work. After that, we were a bit demoralized and kind of came back to Sydney and assessed what we were going to do because we couldn't afford to run this service. We couldn't bring the people on. Um, so we're, we're in a real bind. And that's when I bumped into Mellon Cliff who at the time were running a book a company called Fusion Books, which is a yearbook business for schools. Um, and they were looking to scale that out to a bigger vision of what design could be. Um, and actually Lars introduced me to them and got me to go along and talk to them about technology and what you could do in the browser. And I, and I started chatting to them and as part of that, 
Mel told me about her vision for Canva uh, and it really grabbed me. And a couple of months later, I got back in touch with them and asked how they were going and they hadn't progressed anymore. And we decided to band together and start Canva for real. Oh man, that's, that's such a great story. So before we move into Canva, I have one question. Waiting list. It seems like you've tried a lot of like early growth through waiting lists. Is this something that you recommend for people or not? Because you've. it seems like both the examples were like a lot of people, but then there were like issues with it. I think wait lists are good. They're not going to solve all your problems. Like it's good to have something there. Definitely if you don't have a product and you're, you're trying to generate a bit of groundswell, it's good to have a wait list there. Something that gives people a general idea of where you're heading and and gathers those people around you who will be good beta testers for you. But as a way for like actually ensuring the success of your company, it's by no means a silver bullet for that. Um, It's just a good cohort of people that you can throw tests at and who are going to be willing to write a bit of a rough patch as you iron out all the bugs and problems with your product. But, you know, thinking about where your company is going to be a year after launch Five years after launch, like the wait list really plays no role in that. Um, you, you need much more sustainable growth mechanisms and a much longer term view than just having a few thousand people ready to go on the first day. And how do you promote? I mean, I've definitely seen companies, Branch actually helps you build wait lists, especially if you like you refer people. And I've seen some companies do it really well. And I've also seen companies use the exact same technology and fail miserably. Any advice for people who are thinking of that for like an early growth gimmick, I guess? Uh, I think for us, PR has played a massive part. Like our relationship with the media has been really good. And even since the early days of Canva, um, we've always thought about the story that we're telling with each of our product launches or our uh, funding rounds or whatever. And being able to think about that story and send a really clear message out to journalists is really valuable because it really helps you shape what your customers are going to see, how they come across your product, their mindset as they come into the product, and helps you find the right traffic. So even before we launched Canva, uh, I think probably six months before, we just locked in our funding round. It was a bit of a stealth round because we hadn't launched a product yet. Uh, but we managed to get some press from TechCrunch and a bunch of others, and they were talking about the funding round and you know who we were, what product we were building, um, and that was really valuable. I think you know the the wait list swelled a little bit for Canva on that day. The key thing I think with media is is having that ongoing relationship. So from that early funding round, we then fast forwarded six months to launch. And we'd able to, been able to build that relationship with those journalists. We'd found a few more media outlets who wanted to cover us. Um, and that sets you up for a good launch, uh, which is by no means, you know, launching well is by no means the success of your company. Right, of but course. But it's, it's a step, it's a good, right? Yeah, it's a good first step. Um, and uh, that day, the, the week that we launched, I think we got about, so, I mean, we had the wait list of people, probably about 10% of them actually signed up to the product. Um, and then we had a few people coming in through these media outlets. And I'd say we had about maybe 5,000 people sign up in the first week, um, which is good, but then it kind of 
dives very sharply. One that always that happens. All your wait list is gone, all the attention's gone. And that's when you start getting into the more iterative growth engine that's really going to fuel the success of your company. So what was it in the early days? How did you, once the slump happened, and I, I definitely know what you mean by that, not at branch, at branch we actually started very slow and accelerated, but with the app before we had very similar experience. Yeah. What were the things that helped in the early days and how, how many of them are still like valid today and how many of them were just like early days things? I think you you know before you launch the product you re, you have you have no idea what your market is like you can have a good guess you can do lots of research you can do lots of testing I agree with that but 100% you, but you have, yeah you have no <laughs> idea who it's actually going to resonate with so all these people sign up on the wait list some people are reading TechCrunch who you know you are never going to be your customers but they'll all sign on and that gives you that spike and then they actually figure out what the product is and then they're like no nah, it's not for me so then they'll dive off But hopefully there's a little percentage of people in there who are who you're looking for. And it's from them that you can start growing your product. And for us, it was very much around word of mouth and just people wanting to share this experience. Um, we didn't have like a very complicated growth strategy for a while. I mean, we still don't have a complicated one, but a very well thought out uh, growth strategy for the first year. We mainly focused on building a really great product that was useful to people that they would then wanted to share and bring other people in. Uh, and I think we were, we were quite fortunate that our market uh, initially was social media marketers and bloggers who love telling people about stuff, love people telling people about tools and will write free articles for you about Canva because it gives them content to, to share with their audience. Um, so we're really fortunate that they picked up Canva in the early days and, and helped us spread it. I mean, the word of mouth comes from somewhere. So I think the, the thing I love about having you, we haven't really had anyone from the design who has a strong background in design on our podcast before. And you've like I think Brittany was telling me uh, that you wrote five books on design. So you, you when you when you think, and then, you know, we're a Canva customer, and I've used, I think we started using it a long time ago. And one of our designers is like, I love this, this is what we're all going to use. You know, like design was such a big part of like your growth strategy. So tell us a little bit more about that. I think that's like super interesting and, and quite different than the other guests we've had on the podcast. Yes, I mean, Canva's product is all about design. It's all about graphic design and, and communicating your ideas through the assets that you produce. But the use, uh, but, but it's beyond that, yeah. it's actually very easy to use. Like the reason we moved from Photoshop to Canva is because Canva, the design and the UX of Canva is so easy, right? Yeah, yeah, I think, you know, often there's a, there's a very hard line drawn between graphic design and UX design, but I actually think they're, They're closer than most people think. You know, Canva, the product is about graphic design. Canva, the product experience is all about the experience design. And I've got a background in both. I, I uh, grew up making print software catalogs that people would thumb through and order software over the phone with. And I also have a background in website design and product design, which really focuses on the digital experience that people have. And I think in both cases, you're thinking a lot about your audience and who it is that's actually consuming something, that's using something. So in a print catalog, you're still thinking about people physically moving through a book, attracting their attention, enticing them to take a next step and a next action. Um, and it's the same thing with digital products, it's just in a different medium. 
we focused a lot on the user experience of Canva. And for us, that speaks to the product quality and the, the ultimate goal that we want for people to get into the product, have a really simple, easy time and get something out of it that they couldn't have got anywhere else. Um, and we focused on that from day one. And it took us a year to build that first product. You know, often people say, release a product that you're embarrassed about. We were often asked, you know, by investors and other people to, to keep launching or like actually launch the product. Um, and we resisted until we had something that we knew people would have a really good experience in. It was by no means perfect. I wouldn't say we weren't embarrassed by it, uh, but I'd say our embarrassment levels were uh, slightly lower than um, other products that, that launched on their first day. And I think that's been the key to a lot of our success over the years is a focus on that quality, a focus on what the customers are doing and what they get out of it and making sure that they leave Canva with a smile on their face and a realization that they just did something that they hadn't been able to do before. That's awesome. And, you know, I think from my perspective, you guys have used us for a while, but I think one thing that was very interesting is that you always, your team always focused more on the user. I mean, Branch offers attribution as user experience and your team always focused on like, let's use the links to make the experience great, <laughs> uh, even yeah, on the marketing and stuff. Branch is a great example of making a better user experience and just making it simple enough that People don't have to worry about what links they click on, what uh, type of device they're using, where they end up, like branch and camera, just figure it out for you and you end up in the right place, continuing on the same journey that you thought you were on. Okay, so we heard about the experience and the growth. I want to get to know you a little bit better and like talk about your personal growth through all of this. We've done some good stocking, so I have some questions, but outside of like things you can find on LinkedIn, what's the one thing that you think about you that helped you? you know, go through these really interesting journeys and, and get you to the, you know, the success that you see today? Uh, I'd say like a real passion for technology. Like I always straddle design and technology and it's always a tricky balance for me which one I end up in. Uh, but I've had a real thirst for technology ever since I was a kid. Um, you know, some of my earliest memories are sitting next to my brother playing computer games with him as we uh, we'd get games. My dad owned a computer store, so we'd get games from that store, carefully slice them open, load them onto our computer and then seal them back up and put them back on the shelf. And playing around with technology, start, I started hacking those games to like get extra money and civilization and boost my points in this other game. And it was, a, it was a lot of fun for me. I never, I didn't do a lot of formal computer studies until I hit university. Uh, but I always had that real interest in technology and an interest in diving under the covers and seeing how things worked um, and trying to make my own things out of it. So you're at this intersection between creativity, design and technology, which is like hard to find. And, and, you know, I was looking you up and I, I, we found like you also DJ and you have this website called Man in Blue, yeah. uh, which is like technology and creativity. <laughs> you know, the first tab on this website is like experiments. I haven't listened to it yet, but what, what, you know, what drove you to create that and how do you feel that is that related? To, do you learn anything that's relevant to your day to day job as you work on that? Yeah, definitely. Do. Like, I think, you know. Fueling your creativity is super important all throughout your life. Uh, and I think the day I lose the drive to create something new and explore areas is, is the day I should give up. 
Um, music is just part of it for me. I've studied music for a long time. I've played piano since I was eight. Um, and DJing is a really easy way for me to, to keep that going. I actually DJ all the Canva parties and actually... We no have way! A, um, we have an all company all hands now on Zoom, and I like DJ the intro and outro for that to get people in the mood. Yeah, it's all, it's all this big mashup for me. So music, design, technology—they all feed feed into the same thing. Probably the prime example of that was this uh, massive remix I did of Daft Punk, which took like twenty of their songs and condensed it down into three minutes. And I actually released that. Got a few downloads of it. Um, and then a couple of years later, I decided to make a data visualization of the whole thing of like how all the parts played together. And I turned it into code, used JavaScript to, to visualize it and release that. Um, and actually made it to the top of Reddit and got like uh, 3 million views. Wow. And um, that, was, that was like a month after we launched Canva and I stuck a little banner at the top that said, hey, go check out Canva um, to, to try and get that traffic to go over. And I think we actually got more signups from that than we did from our TechCrunch article. TechCrunch doesn't do as much. I'm like now obsessed with your website. I can stop clicking on it. The mouse board, the bunny hunt. This is cool. <laughs> There's a lot of very retro stuff in there. So take it with a grain of salt. For our listeners, uh, if you want to get to know Cameron better, themaninblue.com. It's pretty, it's pretty awesome. And it has everything from games to DJ sets to just random code projects. So it's really cool. Do you still um, add and do things like this? Or do you feel like being a founder, you have less time for this kind of projects? Uh, it's definitely tricky to, tricky to juggle. Uh, it goes through waves where I can, I'll spend a little bit of time dedicating my thoughts to some experiments. But yeah, most of my, most of my thoughts nowadays go into Canva and supporting the team there, driving forward projects uh, and helping the company grow. If you were to think about someone starting their career, I'd like to ask this question for a lot of our uh, speakers. What advice do you have? You know, you probably didn't start out thinking that you're going to be a founder and had a product of a successful company, but you had like a really interesting journey there and you probably took advantage of opportunities. How should others who are early in their careers think about their own career and their own growth? Uh, Sticking to this, and I think half of something is better than all of nothing. And I think that plays out in a few different ways. Um, One is you shouldn't be afraid of sharing your ideas. People are often afraid of sharing their idea because they think people will steal it, that there's some IP contained in the words that you say that are going to be the secret to your success. But what I've found is that sharing your idea and sharing your vision and inspiring people is much more powerful than keeping secrets. And it's only through the sharing of your idea that you can develop it and evolve it and figure out whether it's useful to people, whether it resonates with them, whether it's something that they want to help you build. The other part of that is that you really need people to help you along this journey. Uh, It's extremely hard to build something just by yourself, um, with no support around you, with no one to bounce ideas off, with no one to support you emotionally. And I think having that founding team around you was particularly important for Canva, and in retrospect was important on all the projects that didn't succeed in my life as well. How do you find, like, outside of the founding team, do you have other peer groups and any other ways that you get support? Talking to my wife is always incredibly valuable. It's probably the, the 
the most valuable time I can ever um, spend. But we also, also have some people that I hit up locally in Sydney. So there's a, there's a few people who have run successful companies. Um, there's one called Dave Griner, a campaign monitor, who's incredibly valuable with his time and, and one of the nicest guys you meet. And I've talked to him a lot over the years. Um, we also have this peer group that we set up um, as part of Tech Sydney, which is a, a local um, technology founders group. Um, and they've divided us up into various cohorts and there's one group there, about five or six people that are all have companies roughly the same size as us. So around, you know, anywhere between 200 to 500,000 people. Um, and we get together regularly. We used to have formal meetings, but we all got pretty busy and disorganized and uh, those no longer happen. But catching up with them for dinner is still a great time nowadays and we get to share what we've been on and, and what's troubling us at the moment. No, that makes a lot of sense. And I think peer groups, you know, I was, I, I think I've heard it from other people, peer groups are like incredibly important and finding people who are in the same life stage as you and the same type of job as you, um, it's so hard sometimes and you don't think, sometimes people don't go to the effort of doing that. But when you have a peer group, it's easier when you like are in a job, usually your peer group are your coworkers. I think when you're a founder, it's actually your, your co-founders, but they usually do very similar jobs than you, very, very, very different jobs than you. So actually finding a group of peers, I found it also very helpful. So I love that. I think it's really good also to get different perspectives because not every found, you know, every found is unique. And some will have like a really strong finance background. Some will have a strong HR background. Some will be product or technology. And they all give different perspectives on the same problem. Um, and it's really valuable to hear those and feed them into your, your data analysis so that you can make a better decision. Yeah, I agree. And I think even some of the conferences we've, you know, for our listeners, Cameron and I met in person at different conferences around the world. I think the last time we went uh, to a sauna and then went to a yeah, last, frozen Yeah, last lake. time we were in a hot tub in Finland. But it was so interesting because we, uh, it was a group of people and we had like, I think I learned a lot from those discussions in the hot tub. Um, and it was incredibly interesting. So um, the power of peer groups, I can't say enough about it. So, you know, before we go to our last few questions that are, are super round, I want to ask just something like, how do you think, what do you think the big changes are going to be in our, in, in our industry in general? I think, you know, mobile has been a big trend, but with COVID, with work from home, um, do you think there's going to be any, you know, big shifts and big areas of opportunities for growth in the next few years? Yeah, I think we've gone through a door that we can't go through again. So work flexibility, working from home is going to be something that's demanded by a lot of people and also um, used to real advantage by companies. Uh, and I think having a remote, flexible workforce is going to be a huge advantage, particularly to, to digital tools where you don't need to have an office. Um, so we're really looking at, at how we structure the company and how we give staff the best time away from the office. I think any tools that, that obviously play into that, so communication tools, obviously, collaboration tools like Canva. And I think also there'll be a big opportunity in how to manage that workforce and keep them coherent. Um, it's fantastic being in the same office with a group and being able to throw ideas around and be in that real melting pot, um, which is a bit harder on Zoom. And, you know, I've 
done design sprints before. I've done some design sprints on Zoom, and then I'd probably rate them at about three out of ten. Um, but ways to ways to bring people together now and really give you that collaborative feeling that you did in person. I don't know any tool that's that's particularly done it well, but I think it'll be a really emergent area. I agree. I think we haven't quite figured it out either. I think that's, you know, on our marketing team, we basically decided that we're going to do an offsite at the park and it's not mandatory. We're not going to work, but everyone's going to come. Some of us are going to bring our dogs. We're going to wear masks and bring a pillow or a chair. It's just like, you know, I love this idea that everything that's happened is going to make us be more flexible, but I would love a world in which we had this flexibility, but also a way to come together once in a while. Yeah, finding that balance is going gonna, is gonna to be the million-dollar question, I think. Okay, so the next part of our podcast are three fun questions, uh, pretty lightning questions. If you had to delete all the apps you had and you could only keep one app on your phone, what app would that be? That would definitely be Spotify. Having the entire world's music in your pocket is just too invaluable for me. You are Definitely a creative person. Uh, we've heard things like Google Maps and Spotify. I don't think anyone has said Spotify before, so. Yeah, that's surprising. Uh, we've heard WhatsApp, some no, random game. I don't want to talk to anyone. I just want to listen to some good music. <laughs> that's awesome. Okay, so then this will tell us if you're an animal person or not. If you could have an app that allowed you to, to communicate with one animal or one type of animal, what would that be? One type of animal. All right. So if it was one animal, I was going to say my cat because I was. Yeah, want that's, to think, that's a good answer. I want, I want to understand what they're thinking. But if it was one type of animal. I was going to say red panda because they're like my favorite animal. But wow. I think conversation, conversation with a dolphin might be more intelligent. Those are like really interesting answers. Uh, the dolphin would be so cool. I don't know. It makes me think of the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy for some reason. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. It's the. The dolphins tell everyone to leave the planet I know. they escape. Well, they, no, they, yeah, exactly. If we could talk to them, they would have told us instead of just leaving, leaving us with the fish. Okay, and then lastly, you know, what's the most unlikely app on your phone? Something that like maybe people who knew you would not expect. Well, there's probably two. I've got an app for the ice cream shop around the corner. Um, so... So I do like my ice cream and they have an app where you can just pay on the app so you don't have to take your, your card in or anything. Uh, but the other app I have is an astronomy app. It's called Skyview, I think. Wow. And you can, it uses like AR and direction and you can point it at the sky and it'll tell you what stars you're looking at. No, I want cool. to try the it. Kid, that is, that is kids, pretty cool. The kids really like that. Wow. And then I heard that you love chocolate. So is your favorite ice cream chocolate? Uh, it's not actually. My favorite ice cream would probably be something like super creamy. Actually, there's a, there's a good uh, gelato shop in Newtown in Sydney, and they actually won best gelato in the world one year. Wow. Um, and their, their, their award-winning flavor is affogato, which is like creamy coffee flavor. That's really good. I was in Sydney now. I feel like I missed out. Next time I'm coming. Uh, next time you come, I can definitely take you on an ice cream tour of Sydney. I don't think we knew each other, but I actually came to the camp offices and met Rene. I still remember. It was maybe three years ago, four years ago. It was a long time ago. That's awesome. Well, you, def you definitely have to come back once planes are in the air again. I will. 
Cool. Well, this was awesome. Thank you so much for all the stories. Uh, super interesting stories on growth um, and all your advice on career growth. And it was just really awesome having you with us today. No problem. Pleasure chatting. Thank you so much for listening. If you like the show, please leave a review wherever you listen to this and share with someone trying to grow their career. Until next time, keep growing.